Um, we're going to go to people who can answer. Uh, Kim still has more questions uh, um, for Sebastian too. Oh, let me let me just add, let the, let you guys know what it's about. Um, everybody enjoyed Sebastian's uh, exploits in the Arctic, and uh, uh, <laughs> they want Sebastian. They want to know if you want an intern, uh, if you are uh, looking for interns, um, and. Uh, how did you take care of the food and electricity for 100 days? I think they had a huge battery right at the base of the uh, base of this habitat that he showed. But that's a good question for Sebastian about food. I think they ate polar bears. Just kidding. Um, um, it seems your origami structure doesn't have thermal protection. You're right. I mean, uh, he did show some, but you may have heard it was acoustically very hard for them to keep up. And I suppose uh, the heat too, they had to maintain it using the batteries. Good. Mm. From Ken, uh, did you say 700 times or 700%? I think seven times. Seven yeah, okay. that was my question, Madhubat, because I didn't catch how, um, the ratio between the undeployed and deployed configuration. And it seems I understood 700. I said, wow, that's, that seems too so much. <laughs> Chris, Chris has a thought, Chris? Yeah, you just went off. Okay, good. Next one is a, a question for Pablo. Pablo is with us or gone? Spacesuit connection to the rover of Habitat doesn't seem comfortable. Oh gosh, tell me about it. <laughs> the entire spacesuit concepts need a lot of revision to make it work. But uh, you hit it right on the spot, Elif. <laughs> okay. Um, especially when people <laughs> want to get off of it. Okay, doffing as, as opposed to donning. Okay, how to figure this problem? So she's very worried about that. From Albert Musa, dust was mentioned several times. What is being done on dust filtration? Did anyone want to say, anyone have a question? Uh, my thinking is th this is a nuisance. It messed up, fouled up Apollo very badly. It had problems on lunar core on Russian uh, instrumentation. It pretty, it pretty much killed one of the lunar cards um, and Venus, I mean, on, on Mars, uh, everything is coated with a thick pile of dust. So architects need to design this, at least show a windshield wipers to clean it once in a while or something. But anyway, think about it. Venus before Mars. Is there any space architecture centered on the planet Venus? Yes, there is. And that is at least one design that I have saw or seen come out of Jeffrey Landis that does not talk about landing on Venus, but on floating in the atmosphere, which does not have so much sulfur, uh, sulfuric acid, and, and of course, much better gravity than any other planet that we would be accustomed to. So that's a question. Pankaj has a question. In the context of the moon Mars settlement plans, what about the international consensus and framework on the use of space as a world commons? Yes, dear Pankaj, this is where the debates are. In April, there will be the UN COPOS meeting. 
where people will sit together to, together and decide the future of space together. Togetherness is very important. <clears throat> and one more from uh, Elif. I wondered if the given examples of domes in the presentation had been tested with 3D printing. Is it possible to construct with 3D printing? Oh, somebody else should answer this. I mean, uh, uh, any three, uh, Xavier, did you want to say something? My understanding is yeah. yes, 3D it's printing. A question about 3D printing? What was it? I wondered if the given examples of domes in the presentation had been tested with 3D printing. Is it possible to construct with 3D printing? If you remember, Xavier, Enrico um, Dini did some interesting work and then Foster Partners did some great work uh, when you were uh, designing that uh, hab. Uh, any other thoughts? And of course, uh, uh, our own Professor Koshner has been working on 3D printing as I worked well. with uh, Enrico, of course, at, at, at Foster's. Uh, we did that kind of ESA uh, project. Um, that was, you know, very early on. We didn't really go, and although we did some uh, actual three printing parts, we did a part in um, Earth environment, kind of a large part, just yeah. a block, really. And then we even did at that point, almost ten years ago, we did do a test of three printing in a vacuum, which was really interesting. Yes, right? yes. it was the world's tiniest three print. It was ridiculous, but it was a good test. Right, we didn't go at that stage into actually kind of 3D printing um, the dome structures at all. Um, but yeah, but these you know, there's many studies that that can show that these things are, are possible. Yeah. Yes, you know, we did some low pressure testing and uh, realized there's a long way to go before something like uh, Murha's idea for reinforcement of the of the what we would call a pressure vessel. Um, mm. And to give you a rough idea. To get you to 14.7 psi, which is cabin pressure, which is what we breathe at sea level here, all you need to go out and kick the car tire, the tire on your car. And that's approximately twice, you know, 30 to 40 psi. So if you're on Earth and you have a differential pressure of 15 pounds per psi and you kick the tire, you understand how much pressure goes into. A, a, a habitat that is sitting out there uh, on the moon or on Mars, because the atmosphere on Mars is just an excuse. You know, it's very little. So uh, I think um, there is a lot of experimentation that needs to be done in vacuum, in thermal environments vacuum, because there is also a diurnal motion. You know, uh, every day you're going to get hit with the temperature differential in excess of 100, um, 100 degrees uh, uh, Celsius. Um, on the moon, it's worse. It gets to about 300 degrees uh, um, between the 28 day and the 14 day cycle. So those are the questions I have here. Oh, more, okay. Oh, Mike, um, <laughs> is Marsha here? Yes, Marsha, this question is for you uh, about your domes, Marsha. Once you present it to Elif. Um, so we were trying to 3D print. Uh, a, can you repeat the question clearly? 
Can okay. Master answer my question about domes test worth 3D printing? Uh, so I'm saying that uh, we wanted to test the, um, the result of the dome at Media Lab with uh, uh, Dr. Sumini and Professor Paradiso and others. And but the problem was that it, I was there just for two months and a half. So it was very, very short. And we didn't really have time for that. Uh, another issue is that um, we really want to 3D print in um, in actual scale. So when you do it in smaller scales, like one to 100 or one to 25, overhanging is not that big an issue. But when you print it in one to one scale, the overhanging issue that it doesn't let you to cover the uh, the top of the dome. And that was one of the reasons that I said that maybe ribs are better solutions because ribs, they need, uh, they need the molding underneath. So that's, and they use uh, bricks, not 3D printing. So uh, if we want to go through the 3D printing, probably the surface would be better um, a solution. And we need a keystone or a top cap for that kind of path. But if we go with the ribs, that is another thing that it has, I mean, it has, it is another path. So, I mean, it, I was just testing how these two paths, paths can differ and affect the whole design. So the answer is yes or no. And, uh, and you know, you said it right, uh, Masha. And, uh, uh, you know, domes uh, are are very important. Uh, you'll see, we saw them in all our designs were dome structures in one way or the other. And if you look at the works, you know, I'm glad that uh, that Xavier showed an image of, uh, of um, Candela's work in thin shell structures. There were several uh, Xavier. Uh, the other, other man who did magic with uh, thin shell structures uh, was uh, 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 Luigi Nervi. Nervi did some fascinating things. And, and they all agree that, you know, we have to conserve resources to maximize space. And uh, spherical space is important because by Pascal's law, you want to, you want to be able to um, give uniform pressure on a, on a, on a pressure vessel. Uh, so that's why we go for those kinds of, um, uh, those kinds of um, designs, uh, Ellie. Hope that answered your question. Uh, okay, uh, so now we are open to other thoughts of, oh, there are more. <laughs> um, John Mankin, so anyone else can answer. Okay, is there enough information and data about future version of moon, Mars, or other livable lands and planets? I mean, can we know what will happen to the moon in the future? And we design um, accordingly then. Oh, uh, can you clarify that, Elif? Uh, uh, John left us, uh, but uh, um, is there any information and data on future future vision of Moon? I think she means. <laughs> we just unmute her so she can clarify. Yeah, she hello. Can clarify. Hello. Oh. hello. Hello. Yeah, Elif, do you hear go me? For go for it. Yeah. Uh, what do you mean about the question? Uh, I wondered what will happen to Moon. Okay, I, I don't, I don't want to talk about the other lands, but just simplify it. What will happen to the Moon in the future? I mean, 
not near future, but the far future, do we have enough information about the future version of moon? And according to that information, we can design differently. Because if we design according to the information we have now, uh, but the situation will change and we will design differently. So we need the data and information of moon about the future situation of it. Is there enough information about it, I mean? Okay, uh, in general, the moon will be there long after we are gone, Elif, <laughs> except that yeah. if you look at it in geological time, the moon is moving away from planet Earth. I think you know that, right? Uh, anybody yeah. else want to answer this question for, um, uh, for the architect Elif, who is very <laughs> interested in space architecture? No, no comments, uh, Elif, but uh, you know, I think we have a glorious future in the coming, if you're asking for the coming next 100 years, uh, we're going to have a lot of things happen on the moon. Um, John Mankins, um, you know, we all work together on his reference mission for the South Polar region. I, for one, am not excited about the South Polar region because I sometimes go out in the evening and, and play baseball. And one of the things I find is the shadows do not let you see uh, the terrain. Uh, you can't pick, even pick um, lost balls when the sun is shallow because the terrain changes completely. So robots and so on will have a great happy time on the polar regions of the moon, but humans, we use eyes and we need to see the sun. And so then you ask me, what are you going to do 14 days of nighttime? Well, that's another story. But anyhow, thank you. Um, uh, uh, okay, any other questions, guys? Oh, thanks a lot. Uh, but I have a last question, please, if, <laughs> if you let me to ask before I've unmuted. <laughs> okay, go for it. If you had yeah. one more question, yeah. and then we got to go. Yeah, yeah. Okay, my last question is about uh, uh, biomimicry. I see a lot biomimicry in the space architectural design. So what is the importance of it? Let me see who did biomimicry. I know that Mirra had some nice walking, walking robots. Uh, Giuseppe too did some great work in, uh, go for it, one of the other. Michael Morris also did it. Yes, that's right. So I don't know who else is on here. Elif, uh, who would like to take that question? Uh, Giuseppe, go for it. Um, they're sort of talking about bio, biomimicry, right? Right. Um, yeah, I suppose, uh, well, yeah, my project didn't really take into account biomimicry, but um, I suppose it's, it's a good way of um, just analysing analyzing the world around us and, and then putting those ideas straight into, into the concepts. But um, did you have a specific question sorry, regarding that? Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, what is the importance of biomimicry in the space architecture? Because I see a lot of uh, examples of biomimicry in the design. Let me let there me take it. Uh, let me take it, Giuseppe. Um, mm. uh, Elif, uh, biomimicry is very important, and that is why we have the robonaut on space station, and the whole idea of core robots that. Uh, some of us mentioned here the idea that you would interact with a humanoid robot. 
and it requires a great level of, uh, of thinking, both on the part of the human and the humanoid, and the interactions have to be uh, knowing each other's task, mission, and action in real time. And uh, it is an area where we are catching up. We use a term called artificial intelligence uh, that helps you to have a dialogue with the robot. And uh, we are catching up in that area. Um, and uh, one clear thing is that all of these surfaces that we go to are um, a rough, pristine terrain. And wheeled vehicles cannot handle some of the slopes and the rough and tumble of all these places. So legs are the way to go. That is why we have a lot of, lot of wheel, a lot of legged um, uh, designs that uh, uh, Mirha showed too. So it's very important. And for me, I think other people do, uh, anything that has a head, uh, a body and legs and standing about our height, we have a natural tendency to associate with it in a, in a human level. And um, yeah, there are a lot of um, experiments in psychology about phantom arms and remote movement. There's some very fascinating experiments. You can pick them up on YouTube. Some of the TED Talks show it. So there is a lot of things to be said about biomimicry because after all, nature designed us over billions of years <laughs> to become how we look. So it's only natural for us to quickly copy and use that model to create avatars. So that's my take on it. Is that good? Yeah, thank you. Thanks a lot. <laughs> okay, guys. Okay, did you have any dialogue between yourselves, guys? Uh, you know, uh, we don't want to... Oh, it's already 4.30 and uh, we should slowly wind up. Uh, uh, I am happy to close this event. We went past by an hour, Ken. <laughs> um, but I think no I think it was delightful. Thank you uh, to all um, who joined us, and um, Ken will curate um, all of this and put it out so that all of you can see um, what went on uh, during the course of the day. And uh, my um, hope is that um, architects um, uh, spend a little more time uh, with engineers and engineers um, uh, with architects. You know, during the course of the profession, uh, usually uh, that happens naturally because you are, uh, you know, right there uh, discussing it with it. And the history shows that uh, architects always prevail because of the bigger vision they bring to it. At USC, we have realized this. And now we have a whole philosophy called engineering plus, which means we send our engineers into humanities classes. So they sit down and try to imbibe uh, the, uh, the ambience and thought processes that goes into uh, humanitarian works. And we call it engineering plus. Um, I'm sure this is happening in other schools too, because now the idea of partitioned uh, education is no longer true because you have, you have um, agents like 
uh, YouTube, you have Openware, and um, I find doctors and lawyers who come into my class uh, the most remarkable because they they've learned things from MIT Openware, and you know so the idea of separate disciplines uh, is not the future. Now, if you uh, if to Elif to answer Elif's question. What will it look like 100 years? I think the big changes will be on planet Earth, how we cooperate and how we do things. And war is not the answer. I mean, you know, we have to look at how um, you know, freedom of humanity uh, is, is cherished all over the world. I like to tell that um, space is the ultimate playground for freedom, real freedom freedom of humanity, freedom of thought. And whenever I read the documents, particularly the last four years from NASA, when a lot of things happened, um, there were several uh, space policy documents from the White House, all of them suggested, we are talking about the freedom of humanity, the freedom of woman and man to do the things they want to do. Uh, and if we act that out on, uh, on in space, we are bound to do that with our children on planet Earth. And uh, it is the most cherished thing. I mean, so much blood has been spilled to, to be free. And uh, I think with that, I want to close, uh, give it some thought about why we do these things. At the top, top, top rung level, it really is about the values that we cherish as a society and freedom, I think, comes right up top. Hence, I will close with the term e pluribus unum. It is written in the halls of government in the United States, and we pursue it all around the globe. So with that, thank you all. And thank you all for joining us. Thank you, guys. Thank okay. you. Have thank a you. great evening. Thank you very much. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. See you, bye-bye.